One of the things about the Christian worldview that's unique, uh, even among worldviews that hold to a, a monotheistic faith, uh, is the Christ. Right? So uh, some worldviews see no God, some see many gods. Monotheistic worldviews see one God, but within even that worldview, uh, the Christian faith sees the Messiah, the Christ, as essential to the human experience, and especially for salvation. And as I was reading through the New Testament uh, years ago, I came across a passage that was interesting because when you think about the Messiah, automatically you go to the New Testament, you know, the Testament that Jesus came and he died for. Uh, so we typically go there when we want to learn about Jesus' life and, and kind of the church post-resurrection. But I was reading in the book of 2 Timothy, and uh, I noticed that Timothy's conversion was highly unique in a Christian time. And so I want to look at a scripture with you. It's on the front page of your handout. Uh, it's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. You can look in your handout or you can look up here on the board. The Bible says, You, however, continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which were able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ. Now, when we look at a brief timeline of Timothy's youth, uh, it's going to answer some questions for us. You know, uh, my preliminary question is, what is the sacred writing that Timothy was taught from his youth? Now, Timothy was uh, a Christian. He lived in the Christian age. So, um, you know, if you just kind of look at it at the surface, you might think, well, his mom and his grandmother, as we see in this, in this little book, they're the ones who are the primary in his conversion. They probably read him the Gospels, the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Maybe they read to him from the book of Acts to show him the history of the church. Well, for you and me, that is a reality, but for Timothy, it would not have been possible because he lived before the Gospels were written down. He was living in the book of Acts. It was happening currently with him. You can look at a, a timeline and you'd see that Jesus died at approximately 30 A.D., Timothy's first mention comes around 50 A.D. He's going to be more or less 20 years old. Maybe he's a teen, maybe he's in his 20s, but you know, let's just say he's about 20 years old. The Gospels are going to be written anywhere from 40 to 70 up to 80 or 90 A.D. with the Gospel of John. And this epistle that's being written to him is in 65 A.D. Now, I don't want to spend all my time doing a history lesson, but what I'm trying to show you is when Timothy was a kid, there was no Gospel that was read to him in his New Testament book. So what were the sacred writings that Timothy had that made him wise unto salvation in Jesus? And the answer is the Old Testament Scriptures, the 39 books before Jesus came to this world. So hundreds and thousands of years before Jesus came, books were written, they were collected in the Christian canon. We call them the Old Testament. And these books were able to make a Jew in the first century, a Jew in the 21st century, and anyone in the world in the 21st century could read through them, and then when they hear the good news of Jesus, they'd say, hey, you know what? That's what was being talked about from book 1 through book 39. 
So if you look at the Old Testament together, we see that there are five books of law, Genesis through the book of Deuteronomy. There are 12 books of history from Joshua through Esther. There's five books of wisdom or poetry from the book of Job through Song of Solomon. And then there are 17 books of prophecy from Isaiah through Malachi. And we might think, you know, those 17 books of prophecy, that's primarily where Jesus is going to be foreshadowed. Right? So the prophets are going to look into the future through the divine eye of God. The Holy Spirit is going to inspire them. They're going to write down what they see of Jesus' life. But what I assert to you today is that Timothy learned about Jesus from the very first words in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth all the way to Malachi. And that it's such a compelling evidence for him. And for you and I today, that if anyone has an honest heart when they open the scriptures and look at it, and, and it's compelling even on a, a secular level when you think about the dated scholarship of those books. You know, it's not just a Christian who says that book was written hundreds of years before Jesus lived. Secular scholars also suggest and come to the conclusion that these 39 books were written hundreds and sometimes thousands of years before Jesus lived. So what a compelling evidence we have of the Messiah in the Old Testament. What I'd like to do is look at all 39 references with you. We're going to have to power through 39 in about 15 minutes or so. So I may not give you all the details. And you, you may have some lingering questions by the end of it. Let's talk about it after it's over. But I do think it will be more compelling if we look at all 39 instead of if I just looked at two and told you that the rest were there. So we're going to divide these messianic references into five different types that we see in the 39 books. First, uh, there are references to the sacrifice and or priest element of the Messiah to come. There are kingdom or the, the reign or the covenant or the kingship of the Messiah. There is a world lost in sin and a need for the Messiah. There is lineage or life history that is foretold about the Messiah. And then there are types or examples of the Messiah that are seen that will be fulfilled through the antitype of Jesus. And so without further ado, I invite you to open your hand out and follow along as we look through Old Testament law, history, wisdom, and prophecy and see that there will be at least one and depending on the scholarly source, you're going to see up to hundreds as you read through the Old Testament. But we're just going to look at one in each of the 39 books. Now, please look at the board with me just in case uh, you prefer to look at the PowerPoint. I want to give you an idea of what you're going to be expecting. We'll have the title of the book. We'll have the title of the foreshadowing of Jesus along with the type that it uh, goes under, we'll have the scripture right here, but I also have a timeline of when the book was written. Not necessarily when the, the event happened, but when that event was recorded. And as we go through 39 and it starts to fill up, it's, it's just an amazing timeline of seeing Jesus uh, from about 15 or 1600 B.C. all the way to 400 B.C., before the 400 years of silence. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, while God is dispensing judgment on Adam and Eve for their transgression, He is also dispensing judgment on the devil who took the form of a snake, if you're familiar with that uh, narrative. And God says, I will put an enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Satan would try to uh, end Jesus' kingdom by crucifying him on the cross, bruising his heel. 
But Jesus would overcome and destroy Satan's kingdom, thus bruising his head. It's the first prophetic reference in Scripture, all the way back in the book of Genesis. In the book of Exodus, the Passover lamb, in Exodus chapter 12, there's so many references to Jesus in there. But in verse 21 and 22, we see that they were to take blood and uh, paint it across their door frame so that when death came through and took away the firstborn in any family in Egypt... It would pass over the homes that had that blood on the door. So blood covered the house in the same way of Jesus' sacrifice covering the spiritual house in a new covenant. In Leviticus, we see that the high priest had to offer sin sacrifices for himself. And then he could offer it for the people. So first he had to cleanse himself and then others. Whereas we serve a great high priest, Hebrews 9 verse 24 through 26, who doesn't have to offer sacrifices for himself because he lived a sinless life. He is the great and perfect high priest. In the book of Numbers, there was a a foreigner named Balaam who was a prophet of God, able to make utterances about God and about the truth. And he says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear, all the sun, tear down all the sons of Sheth. The star and the scepter are seen in the New Testament of references of Jesus in a spiritual kingdom. We didn't go around the world destroying the sons of Moab or tearing down the sons of Sheth, but rather we are tearing down the spiritual kingdoms of darkness through the star and the scepter of Jesus Christ. In Deuteronomy, we see in 21 verse 23, he who is hanged on a tree is cursed of God to be fulfilled in Galatians 3.13. Jesus was cursed for being hung on a tree. And also in chapter 18 verse 15, All the way through, Moses says, there's going to be someone who comes after me, who speaks the words of God, just as I did. Moses was a lawgiver. Jesus is a lawgiver who came just like Moses. Moving into the books of history, the name Joshua and Hosea and Jesus all come from the same root. God is salvation. Joshua led his people into a promised land. Jesus leads his people into the promised land. In Joshua 2 and 6, there was a Gentile woman, just like you and me. She was not Jewish. She is one of us. And Rahab is mentioned in Matthew 1 verse 5 as one of the four women in Jesus' family line. And because of her faith, she is honored by being a part of the family of God. And we are indeed a household of faith today. In the book of Judges, we see that a judge was a deliverer, just like Jesus Nevertheless, Judges 2.16, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hands of those who plundered them. Hebrews 11.32 gives great examples showing that Jesus is our great deliverer. In the book of Ruth, we see a woman who is part of the life, uh, the lineage of the Messiah. It says in this genealogy from Perez, Perez begot Hezron, all the way down to verse 22. Obed begot Jesse, Jesse begot David, who was the great king of Israel and the great forefather of Jesus Christ. She is also mentioned in Matthew 1 verse 5. And also just for the reference sake, Boaz who marries this woman who was a foreigner, who was poverty stricken, he was her kinsman redeemer. In Hebrew we call it the Goel. The kinsman redeemer has to want to save someone, has to have the means to save someone. 
uh, is not a slave themselves. It fits perfectly into the pattern of Jesus, the kinsman redeemer of anyone who comes to him and wants to be free from sin. In the book of 1 Samuel, Samuel gives a lament. He's uh, the last of the judges. He's the first of the prophets. And he's lamenting about the depravity that's going on around him. And he says, if one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? He is crying out for the Messiah, someone to intercede on his behalf. The same scripture is seen in 2 Samuel and in 1 Chronicles. It's of David's throne. For the sake of time, we'll just look uh, at verse 15 and 16. It says, But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. You look at Israel today, you're not going to find the throne of David. It's not there. The, the, the physical kingdom or the government of Israel today does not have one in the line of David. So it remains to be seen where is that line that was promised forever. It's a spiritual line. And Jesus was part of the physical family of David. When you look at the genealogy in Matthew and in Luke, you see that he did come from the line of David. But his kingdom is spiritual. And he reigns forever as a spiritual king over a spiritual kingdom. In 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles, we see evidence of Israel reaching out towards the greatness that God had planned for them. Back in the book of Genesis, chapter 12, God had told Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the the sand and the seashore. And he promised him a lot of great things and how all nations would be blessed through that line. And we see the potential of this kingdom almost getting there. Look at this. In 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 20, the Bible says, Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea, and the multitude eating and drinking and rejoicing. This was the golden age. And in 2 Chronicles 1, verse 15, it says, Also the king made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stones. I mean, I bet we all wish that our kingdom was so grand, and we were all so wealthy that our government provided for us so much that we could look down at a piece of gold on the ground and be like, Man, I don't even need that right now. I've got so much. That's how Israel and Judah were living at this time. They were so blessed because they were God's holy people. Unfortunately, that depravity of sin infected their kings, infected the nation that split in two and led to their downfall and being cast away and set aside. And a spiritual remnant remains. Second Kings, we see a prophet Elisha being surpassed by the one who followed him. Uh, excuse me, Elisha is greater than Elijah, the one that he uh, proceeded, whereas Jesus is also greater than the one who came before him, John the Baptist. In 2 Kings 2 verse 9, Elisha asks for a double portion of spirit and is known as the greater prophet as a result of that. He is a type of Jesus. In the book of Ezra, we are at a point in their history where that depraved nation was taken away into captivity, and now they're coming back, just a little remnant. And they're trying to rebuild Jerusalem and trying to rebuild their area. Here we have Ezra. He is a priest. And the priest is the leader once again. This is how it was whenever Moses, he was, uh, Moses was the lawgiver, and Aaron and his sons were the priests leading the people. Then they had to turn to judges. Then they had to turn to kings. And it never worked out that way. And so we see their leadership returning to a priest who is spiritually trying to cleanse the people in the book of Ezra. Just like Jesus is our great high priest today. Nehemiah, his contemporary, 
struggled with the inability that the Jewish people had to keep the law perfectly. And he says, remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. And thus I cleanse them from everything pagan. I also assign duties to the priests and the Levites, each to his service. And to bring the wood offering and the first fruits appointed times, remember me, O my God, for good. This is him calling out. After once again they have tried to cleanse themselves. They've tried to be holy. And he's just lamenting. We can't get it right. We need something more than just this law. We need a lawgiver and a mediator and a Messiah. A contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah living in a foreign land was Esther. She's living uh, with the Persians. She is their queen. And again, we are seeing this depravity of their people being sold as slaves, being lost And now on the point of genocide happening to them, and in Esther chapter 4, verse 14, it says, For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish, yet who knows whether you've come into the kingdom for such a time as this. She's been called in this depraved time to rescue her people. And so even though it's only mentioned as the depravity, this would also be point E, as a type of Messiah, somebody who is able to redeem her people from death. Moving into the books of wisdom, (coughs) Job, which is the oldest book in the Bible uh, as far as whenever it was recorded, Job calls out for a mediator between him and God. Look at verse 33. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. In Job 19.25, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. I don't know about you, but I'm getting, it's starting to get cluttered, so I think it would be better if we turn those initials into the proper names. Boom, there we go. That looks a lot better. Let's move on to the book of Psalms, and we'll see that the one that we're talking about is highlighted compared to the small text of the other books. Psalms is written over a long time. It's got a lot of authors, and so its span is several hundred years. But Psalm 22 written hundreds of years before Jesus came. Verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What did Jesus say on the cross? And what did they do around him when he was on the cross? Verse 17, I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Fulfilled when Jesus was on the cross. In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, both come to the conclusion that the world is depraved. Who can say, I have made my heart clean, I am pure from my sins. For there is not a just man on the earth who does good and does not sin. They are calling for a Messiah to come. In the book of Song of Solomon, we see in chapter 5 verse 1, a great example of two lovers, a husband and a wife, who are enjoying the relationship that God has designed for marriage. I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh along with my balsam. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. Eat, friends, drink and imbibe deeply, O lovers. Scholars say that that last line, eat, friends, drink and imbibe deeply, O lovers, is the only line in the Song of Solomon that is given by God. And it is to show that when a husband and wife become one flesh, physically, emotionally, spiritually, that God is blessing their relationship. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 through 25, what is compared to Christ and the church? A husband and a wife. Moving into the books of prophecy, Isaiah 
mentions the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. 700 years before Jesus is born. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Eternal Father. Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, etc., etc. The Messiah is coming, is what Isaiah is saying. And in chapter 53, the great chapter of the Old Testament to show that Jesus would come, we see the suffering servant who was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. And in the gospel narrative, Jesus physically was scourged and physically was crushed and physically was nailed to a cross. And this was written 700 years before it happened. In the book of Jeremiah, it talks about the new covenant that we have. Verse 33 says, But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their hearts, and I will write it, and they will be my God, and they shall be my people. And when you and I were baptized, when we obeyed the gospel, we entered a covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ. In the book of Lamentations, we see a reference to 400 years of silence from the time when the prophets would not speak anymore to the time that Jesus would be born, as well as a general lament. They have just been captured and taken away. Their city and temple has been burned. And Jeremiah is calling out, Our fathers sinned and are no more. It is us who have borne their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. And there is no one to deliver us from their hand. There is a need for a Messiah. In Ezekiel, we see a king servant like David who will come and shepherd his people. In Daniel, we see a kingdom that will crush all other kingdoms. The church is God's kingdom. It is living today. And ever since Jesus rose from the grave for 2,000 years, it has never been quenched. Though physical kingdoms have tried to take away the church, though they have tried to kill Christians and snuff it out, it is unable And we overwhelmingly conquer through Jesus Christ. In the book of Hosea, chapter 2, verse 23, he opens the floodgates to Gentiles being able to come into the the kingdom saying, I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. And if it wasn't for this happening, you and I wouldn't be able to be here. Because my understanding is none of us are Jewish. Maybe you have looked on Ancestry.com. Maybe you've got some. And maybe you have the right to be here in that way. I don't. When I look at that prophecy given 800 years before Jesus came, I see my name in that prophecy. That I am able to say, you are my God because of Jesus' sacrifice. I see in Hosea 11 verse 1, when Israel was a youth, I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son. And when Jesus was a baby, his parents took him away to flee persecution to Egypt and then they brought him out. In the book of Joel, chapter 2, there is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which we see happen in Acts chapter 2, where people are able to speak in all the languages of the people gathered in Jerusalem from all over the world, fulfilled. In Amos, we see the sun would be blotted out at noon. And then, 750 years later, while Jesus is on the cross, what happens? The sun is blotted out at noon. In Obadiah, we see a kingdom that is restored and it was uh, Chapter 1 verse 21 says, Then Savior shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau, 
and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. And we see that as fulfilled in the book of Hebrews chapter 12. Jonah, stay with me. Jonah was in the belly of a whale three days and three nights. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12 verse 39, Just as Jonah was in the whale three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the earth three days and three nights. And when he arose from the grave, after being in the grave, in that Hebraism of three days and three nights, he fulfills that promise as well. In Micah chapter 5 verse 2, we see that Bethlehem is the place where the Messiah is to be born, given to us 750 years before it happens. Nahum, which is written to the Ninevites. It's not even written to the children of Israel. It's, it's written to foreigners telling them that they're wicked and they're going to be destroyed. Even in that little book, we see reference to that God is a jealous God. And that wrath and justice are what awaits those who don't obey. It's a depravity of the world without the Messiah. And Nahum 1 verse 5 says, Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Romans chapter 10, 14, 15. Christians bring good news and fulfill that prophecy. Habakkuk says that the just shall live by faith. He also says that the anointed is coming. That's what Christ means. You know, Christ is not Jesus' last name. You know, Jonathan Edwards, is my, that's my family name. It's not Jesus Christ in the same way. It means Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. And both Christ and Messiah refer to the anointed one. A practice in that culture where they would uh, anoint their head with oil. They would do it to a king. They would do it to a priest at times. They would do it to a prophet. It meant you are called. You are special. You are chosen. Jesus was the anointed. Zephaniah talks about the remnant that was to come. and That is the church. We see it in Romans 9 verse 11. Haggai talks of the new temple. And we see in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 25 through 29. That's us. This building means nothing. Right? And the greatest cathedrals that have ever been built in the name of Jesus really, in essence, mean nothing. Because we are the temple. It's the people. Our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And because we're that temple, we are part of this prophecy coming in Haggai in about 500 B.C. Zechariah, I've got three here because they're just so compelling but it talks about in chapter 6 that he will be a king and a priest. The first of his kind. In Zechariah 9 it says that king is going to come riding on a donkey. And Jesus entered Jerusalem as the king. The Jews at that time expected their Messiah to come on a white charger horse. Busting into Jerusalem. Tearing through the Roman lines and establishing a physical kingdom. But the king came humble. And riding on a donkey. Because it was a spiritual kingdom. And Jesus fulfilled that. Zechariah also said that for 30 pieces of silver, he would be betrayed. So 400 years before this happened, a prophet said that uh, one of Jesus' followers would hand him over for 30 pieces of silver. Judas does just that in Matthew 26, verse 15. And finally, in the book of Malachi, John prepares the way. Behold, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, He is coming, says the Lord. And when John the Baptist came onto the scene, He was the one to prepare the way. Now, in conclusion, I've taken up my fair share of time. Thank you for your kind attention. We've just blown right through it. 
A few years after the resurrection, as the church began to grow, people went around sharing the good news. And they shared, the, they shared it orally. They didn't have anything written down. That's how Timothy was converted. was through the oral good news of Jesus and then the written sacred words of the Old Testament. But I need to share one more example and then we'll offer the gospel invitation. As the church began to grow, there was an evangelist named Philip. And Philip was called by the Holy Spirit to go down from Jerusalem towards Gaza on this this road. And while he was there, an Ethiopian comes along who was a proselyte. He was a Jewish convert. And this Ethiopian is returning from Jerusalem on a long trip back home. And he's reading from the Old Testament. He's got the prophet Isaiah, chapter 53, and he's reading through it. And uh, Philip asks him, hey, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch says, how can I unless somebody explain it to me? So he goes up in the chariot and they read this scripture, this sacred writing. And then the eunuch answered Philip and said, please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or someone else? And Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And as they went along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, water. What prevents me from being baptized? You know what the Old Testament's capable of? The Old Testament, from Genesis through Malachi, is capable of leading someone to Christ to where their only reaction can be, man, there's water. What keeps me from becoming a Christian? And you know what? Philip not once opened up a book from Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, all the way to the book of Revelation. He starts with a prophecy in Isaiah. He shares the life of Jesus with his death, burial, and resurrection. And no doubt is sharing other scriptures from the Old Testament. And the reaction is, I can be saved too. So this morning, if you have ever wondered why you should read the Old Testament, read it with an eye for Jesus. Because from the very first words, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, to the very last words of, behold, I will send my messenger, you will find the Messiah to come. And how compelling it is to see Him there. Jesus said in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who is and who was and is to come. And what a great representation we have of Alpha and Omega in the Old Testament. The lesson is yours. If somebody here this morning would like to become a Christian, or if you are a Christian and and you would like to have the prayers of the church, then we offer you this gospel invitation. The Bible says that based on hearing the good news of Jesus, that is hearing it, that people believed in the Bible, They believed that Jesus was the Son of God. They repented of their sins, seeing that the world is depraved and that the world needs a Messiah. People say, I need that too and I'm willing to change. They confess that Jesus is the Son of God. Just like the eunuch did in water, whenever he got there, he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It's the first of a lifetime of confession. And then he was baptized and you can be baptized in water today. Beginning a new life as a Christian by faith in Jesus Christ. If anybody here needs the prayers of the church, we want to open that time for you as well. Please come forward as we stand and sing a song.